0: Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2275. Today we're going to be talking with the author of a book who wrote about a man who was sometimes a hero, sometimes a villain, and was the unseen puppet master behind many of today's best classics. So be prepared to be inspired. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah! Today I'm in beautiful, sunny Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, ah, where the sun always shines, it's always warm, with a very special guest by the name of Miles Cornblatt. Miles, welcome to Cars Yeah! Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch?
1: Well, thank you very much, Mark. Absolutely.
0: All right. We're going to have some fun. Now, before I give you a proper introduction, and we're going to dive into a, a fascinating book, fascinating for me, what's one little thing, though, about you that maybe most people don't know?
1: <laughs> uh, in some ways, it's almost as if most people don't know that I exist, at least. In that the, you uh, exist? Oh,
0: come on. <laughs> and, I, and
1: I don't mean that like a, like I'm an angst teenager in any sort of way, like, oh, no, nobody doesn't like me, though. No. <laughs> I like subjects that are much, much further out there. That it's so, that's so much more important to see the subject. It's not Miles Kornblatt brings you Max Hoffman. It's Max Hoffman. And the most memorable part of this book should be the title should be million dollar middleman. So I don't think anybody sees my little name on there. And you know what? I'm perfectly happy. Read the book, love the book. And then, then maybe you remember me afterwards. But I, I like, I like the stuff to be out there first.
0: I understand. <laughs> this sounds very common for many, many authors that I, Talk to here on Cars. Yeah. A lot of them are kind of quiet and solitude, which kind of makes sense with writers. You kind of think of writers as tucked away and investigating and putting books together and writing and all that kind of thing. So it kind of makes sense. But uh, now you're going to be very famous. You're going to have to wop- watch out for the paparazzi everywhere you go. So, you know, dress nice when you go out from from this day forward. Okay. Done. <laughs> Done. There we go. Let me give you an introduction here, Miles. Miles Cornblatt is a lifelong. Pa- <clears throat> Do that all over again. Hold on. Miles Cornblatt has a lifelong passion for automobiles that has led him to hit the road searching for interesting cars, which we'll be talking about later in our talk. His work has appeared in publications including Top Gear, Classic Cars, Classic Car Weekly. Hemmings Daily, and Octane. He started his career in radio news, is the former curator of the Miami Auto Museum, and usually keeps classic automobiles that are a bit hotter for him to have fun with. His new book is titled Max Hoffman, Million Dollar Middleman That Charts the Career of Hoffman, a U.S. dealer who represented Many brands, including Jaguar, Porsche, Mercedes, Volkswagen, Lancia, BMW, and many other European car brands during the decades following World War II. Sometimes he was a hero, sometimes he was a villain. Max Hoffman was the unseen puppet master behind many of today's best classics. We'll be back in just a moment to learn a lot more about Miles and Max, but first a word from our sponsors, so give them a little love, and we'll be right back. 9324 and protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. They're talented and They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. You know what? We are all wired differently, and not everyone needs to go to a four-year university. Technical education and the skill trades matter, and one can build a solid career as an auto, diesel, or collision technician. They are no longer blue-collar jobs; they're new-collar careers, as the technology and skill sets have become so advanced. Support career and technical education by getting involved with TechForce Foundation. It's a Carjia yeah, charity of choice. Learn more at techforce.org. <laughs> So, Miles, we're back. So before we dive into Max Hoffman and the book that you've written about him, tell us a little bit about you, because I gave a little hint at the beginning. You've been into classic cars. You've appeared in many publications, some of which I listed, and you are a curator at a museum. So how did you get into cars? What was the interest there?
1: Um, it's car... When, it said, when you say lifelong cars, that's really what it was. I mean, I, 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 I just gave my young son my Matchbox collection, and I cringe every once in a while when they, uh, <laughs> yeah, when, when, they when they hit the wall, kind of thing. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, yep. but I, but I did it too, and so I, I love watching him learn, and I, I hate watching him rip off a door, kind of thing. <laughs> but it, it's his, and so that that grows over time into the idea of actually. But, so I've always been good as a hobbyist. Where it became more of a professional side is. I started out in radio. I did um, radio news and I, I worked for uh, a, a, a couple of TV stations kind of thing. And I ended up actually in PR and I'm sitting in an office that has no windows whatsoever. But I'm the director of communications, big, important title to me, I'm director of communications, nice size office, but has no windows. And I just thought to myself why there i'm reading about things in car and driver this is this is the days of the buff books kind of thing I'm reading about things in car and driver and i can i can see people going out having fun doing real things with cars and i know stories they are not telling and why am i sitting here kind of thing and so that i i just sort of blew that world up and uh, and started my business
0: well i love it and when you say you started your business what was or is your business how do you define that
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think we put a LinkedIn page in there and my, my LinkedIn page just has me like director of yes, I think is what I call myself. Yeah. Um, and I was going to of-
0: ask you about that director of yes. What does that mean? If that means I rarely am
1: going to say no to anything. Uh, and, and for what I do, if, if it's in my professional wheelhouse um, because so my company is Oxford Unlimited. Oxford Unlimited is an extension of me. I mean, so it might as well just be Miles Kornblatt LLC. I've got part-time people who work for me and help me research and do my stuff, but I'm doing, so I'm absolutely doing feature work. I'm absolutely doing books. Those are the things that I love, but the things that, well, you know, you know, I have your sponsors keep the lights on. The things that keep the lights on at my house are also just making sure that I'm doing a lot of other things. It's about, Doing, um, working as a consultant, working with consignment houses to show them you know, how maybe a car is going to be a little bit better. I'm an expert witness for lawsuits sometimes just because people don't know how much that car is really supposed to be worth. And when somebody says it's worth a heck of a lot more and their insurance company says, no, it's not. I can kind of help bridge that a little bit if you're doing arbitration. It's all these weird little bits and public speaking. I've got a, I've got a background in business. And so... If you know, sometimes there's just times when people need somebody to sort of be on business point. And so I can bridge that world of cars and business. And so whatever it is, if you need it, I just kind of say yes. In between, uh, in between all the different writing.
0: Yes, I love it. That's great. Nicely said. Well, let's talk about this book because Max Hoffman has been one of these characters that I, I've known about because I've been in the classic car world. I love classic cars and hear stories about him. But you took a deep dive into this man's life. And we'll kind of start with he was born in Vienna, Austria in 1904. And when you look forward towards what was happening in Europe, World War One, and then World War II, and he was born into a Jewish family, which created some challenges, of course. What was going on uh, after World War One and leading up to World War II, he and his mom, as I read in your book, fled. And it sounds like he was one of these guys that maybe was a little bit like you. He was a man of yes. He got involved in a lot of different things, found his way to the United States, and of course, uh, figured out a way to import and sell cars. So can you give us a little bit about those early days and leading up to that beautiful showroom that he had on Park Avenue that he hired Frank Lloyd Wright, for goodness sake, to to design for him. And I understand he also had uh, Mr. Wright design a home for him, which is very cool. So obviously, this guy became very successful. So give us a little bit of flavor of how you perceived Max and why he got to where he got. It sounds like he was just a very man of yes, a very innovative guy. (laughs) Well,
1: uh, Mark, you kind of hit it right on the head of the same reason why I I had to do the book project is because every once in a while, Every time you'd look at a car that you loved, there'd be a little footnote about Max Hoffman, right? Porsche Speedster, you know, oh, and Max Hoffman brought this in. Or you look at the 300SL and said, help develop, Max Hoffman helped develop it. Max Hoffman was just this footnote in so many different places. And so it was. There was a lot of Max Hoffman stories that always went around. Just if you were talking cars, you're talking about, you're standing in front of a car you love. Somebody might tell a little bit about how Max Hoffman, you know, grifted him for you know more money or Max Hoffman maybe made sure this got made. There was a lot of, he was always this little bit of these cars. And so that was what decided to dive in. And as you even look at his early life, there was just so much of that variety. He was, when he was in Vienna, he eventually put together a huge dealership. I think he had, yeah, uh, he, he had everything from coach-built cars to Volvo. He was—he really just was a, a man of everything. He, I think he especially loved the uh, the design part of things. Like that's why he had Delahays, and he always had a very good coach work for them and, and things like that. He really had some nice premium cars. But I—I I think fleeing Vienna, and going to France, starting up a uh, another. Um, automobile agency in Paris, and they had to flee again, all because of, of Nazi's World War II and all that, I think he kind of depleted his funds. I think he, he had lost many fortunes along the way. So he arrives in New York. I I don't think he was penniless but i certainly don't think he was um ready to buy a whole bunch of cars also world war ii is going on and so he's not exactly there there are no cars
0: people people. aren't buying yeah cars either if if you if you can find tires
1: you're considered you know a a pretty impressive person so i don't think he's brokering in whole cars in in that day right but so what but so what he does is he sells plastic jewelry during the war because why because there isn't metal but women are doing a lot of the working, and they have extra money, and so that's how he's making. Fun. That's how he's making his living is he's selling to the people who are around and who are the most, who are, who are the most receptive and who have the most money. He gets plastic. He has jewelry that's plastic, but get to look like gold, and he's not selling it as gold. It is being sold as plastic. Everybody knows what it is, but you can't get your hands on gold. You can't get your hands on precious metals. It's the closest thing to real jewelry, and he makes real money. And so. He's got a successful business at the end of World War II. Cashes that in so that he can have his first. Um, he can have his first showroom I and his first showroom right on Park Avenue in New York, ritzy, ritzy address. Most people were on Automobile Row then, um, more closer to Broadway. But he wanted to be premium vehicles, premium location. You know, he he wanted to immediately establish himself as the upper class destination, and the best way to do that is to be right in the heart of it all.
0: Wow. You know, fascinating guy. I mean, very innovative. And if you think about him, very flexible when you look at his life of fleeing two countries, coming to a n- new country, then looking around going, well, can't do what I know. I'm going to do something different doing it and then eventually bringing these very, very wonderful cars. And I wondered, how did you or what did you learn about his, you know, he became very, very influential to these manufacturers. And you think about these European manufacturers who were designing and doing things. They had great pride in what they're doing. And he would sit down and go, no, nah, no, nah, it won't work over here. You take the Porsche speed you got to build something you know that's completely simple easy clean and you think about that time period mid-50s and what the U.S. cars look like and he had this idea of something very simple and plain and I'm sure these car manufacturers going dude what what are you talking about but he seemed to have a grasp of his client base and what they wanted How, how do you think he was able to do that?
1: Today, we'd probably call that just having the X factor because he would always have that one extra piece that seemed like the car company didn't have at the time. And it was never the same. It, what you brought up with the, the Porsche Speedsters is a great example because Porsche before the Speedster had a car called the America Roadster. And it was an amazing car. It, was, it had great lines. In fact, Max Hoffman asked them to build them almost like, um, like a mini Jaguar. So it had these really beautiful flowing lines. The reason why I had flowing lines was it was a coach-built vehicle, and it was very expensive. And it was a great racer, but very few people could ever get their hands on it because it was just so priced out of, uh, just out of range. And so that developed into the Speedster, where Max Hoffman's influence came back in on the Speedster again. He didn't influence the design as much. He talked about him, but he told Porsche, he's like, look, the reason why this failed is because by price. I know where we can put this in the market in the price that it needs to be, and so he he hammered he hammered them pretty good on price, right down to the point where um there things were he he got the price he wanted, which was under three thousand dollars. But you could never find a Porsche Speedster under three thousand dollars because every time it showed up, it showed up with a few extra options like a passenger seat. There were things <laughs> he had to take out. Just so he could advertise his three thousand dollar budget.
0: Yeah, well, it's fascinating what he was able to pull off, and then and then uh, even bigger marks like, of course, Mercedes is his influence on the gull wing and all that. He just he seemed to be able to look around him and evaluate what was going on. You look at what he did in Vienna, and then Paris, and then New York City. And he just had this innate sense about him, if it's fair to say, that he could figure out what the market could absorb and handle. Where do you think that came from—just street smarts or observation smarts—or? So one thing that was also going
1: on in the early days of Max Hoffman is he's—he was a pretty good racer. Started in motorcycles, started bicycles, motorcycles, and then into cars, and that's all in Vienna. Um, he was not an old man by the time he got to the usa but he was an older man he had already retired from racing but he understood what re- the the value of racing and so he even raced he even kind of raced a few cars here in the usa but he was not being competitive as much as he was promoting his cars but what he was really getting a part of was he was understanding a lot of the original parts of the scca and a lot of what was going on say over everywhere from bridgehampton all the way down to some of the florida tracks that were um that that were starting up like sebring and and places like that and so he could see what those cars were that would be competitive in their field in their within their fields on the track and so he knew where he could slot those in versus what people would about would be willing to pay because for example i mean porsche's basically created almost their own classes for a while they started out in the 1500 cc class and almost sold enough that they became their own sort of classes. But he knew that you weren't going to sell a very big, you weren't going to sell somebody a very, very large priced car that was going to compete in the 1500 CC class. However, if you do something like the 300, the 300 SL Mercedes was going to be for those people who were going up against Ferraris and things like that. And he knew about where those would slot. And so he always could sell to the consumer, but he was also selling to the racer and I really think there was a little bit also of, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday kind of thing, because it wasn't necessarily like he sold thousands upon thousands for each of these races, but all of a sudden these cars both had credit; They actually really could win races. And so they looked good on the streets. And so that duality really sort of helped push on both sides. And that that was the sales side from his design side. He also really could tell people to go back and, and, and get it right. It was, where he said um, the Porsche Speedster is about getting the price right. The BMW 507, he sent back many times just to say, "Get the design right." You know, you guys, you guys aren't re- you guys aren't ready for the era yet. You know, give me give me the right design.
0: Fascinating. When you think of him as an inspirational person, as you dove into his life and writing this book, what was the most inspirational thing for you, Miles, about Max?
1: That was the variety of it. It was the fa- It was the idea that he was just seemed to be everywhere and he he was mythical um until i got to dive into the book and the, the research on this book is there's just not a whole lot of people left who knew him but i got to interview some of the people who did um, and I also, a lot of the car companies kept really, really, really good archives. And by that, I mean, I have memos, I have, uh, and I have telegrams back and forth. And so it's the actual stuff of what people were feeling, what people were saying about Hoffman at the time. And as you just sort of dive in, the, the myth really then became a real person. And he still was a really extraordinary person, but it was also, it was very human. You could see when he was about to, you know, move one way or the other, sort of in some ways walk away from a business or a business was about to walk away from him and that all of that just drew me to that was to make sure to, to clarify what was a myth and who's the man because there's just so much we we'd attribute to him and I was curious is it all real and in many cases it was I mean, it, it, and sometimes I was surprised to find times that he was a representative for a company I never even thought of or or, or he did products I wasn't even thinking of and so it was great to dive in and, and and sort of add to the legend, as opposed to uh, as opposed to never meet your heroes.
0: Yeah, you know when we think about challenges, I mentioned in my introduction, which I pulled from your book. He was sometimes thought to be a hero, but sometimes a villain, and he was a tough guy <laughs> to deal with. So when you think about Max Hoffman and his challenges, what comes up there?
1: One of my favorite stories I found going through the archives, going through everything, and, and getting clarity. Was the story of the BMW five hundred seven? Are you familiar with that roadster?
0: Oh yeah, beautiful that, car. That's
1: that, that, that's that's
0: Elvis's German car. Right? Yeah, you know? the, the white one. Yeah, with the that all the women used to kiss. <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah, he, had, he had to paint it red just to get the lip, just so the lipstick would be on the, <laughs> I saw on the that, car,
0: right? I saw that car on the lawn at Pebble Beach, actually, uh, a few years ago. Uh, they had restored it and, and brought it back. And somebody, I don't know if they did it just for the show or if some woman actually walked up and kissed it, but there was a, a big lip smack right on the fender, which was kind of cool.
1: Was there? Uh, so I, w- I was at that same show, and uh, in fact, that picture is in the book. I took that picture and it was right there. so it was it was before the lipstick smack. I know that okay. because I, I, I took a few minutes to drink in the car. I never saw that. Wow.
0: Yeah, pretty that bold, would have been but a lot uh, of fun. maybe that was done after the judging so that uh, you know, points for lips on the fender might might be coming off. I thought it was pretty funny. But anyway, go ahead with the story about the five oh seven.
1: Right, I, I should I shouldn't leave that hanging, or else it's a little bit weird. But so the BMW 507 to to start at least a little bit further back. BMW is just an interesting car company after World War II, anyway. They're they're probably the largest one that was in the worst shape because their main factory was on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. You know, Mercedes didn't have that problem or, or something like that, and so they were just sort of scrambling to get their cars back together. In the meantime. You know, the, the, uh, the communists were actually making BMWs in their old factory. And so BMW like, we've got to get back to making cars. So they stopped making our cars. Um, and so they, they, they work their way back up, motorcycles and into large cars. So they're making these large sedans. Uh, they're making it by the handful. But if it's large, luxur- luxurious, and European, Max Hoffman's likely going to carry it. So he carried a few of the new BMWs. And just by importing a few, he kind of became their man in the USA anyway. And that started a relationship. It wasn't an official relationship, but it was a little bit of a relationship. And BMW, known for making sports cars before World War II, knew they wanted to make themselves another sports car. They wanted to get back into sporting. They really wanted to get their reputation back. And so they start developing a sports car and, and they start developing a sports car basically on their own. As far as from German heritage, they had they bought Veritas and they um, was it Loof Loof from Veritas helps him develop the sports car. Well, the Veritas part was important because he makes this prototype 507, and this prototype 507 looks like a Veritas car. They know BMW knows Max Hoffman's the one that's probably going to sell it, so they bring Max Hoffman over. And he takes one look and he goes, "No," he just says, hmm, "Looks, it looks like an old design. Don't like it." As it turns out, today we think it's pretty beautiful, but then he just said no. And so Max Hoffman goes back into uh, back to New York. This is the early 1950s, and in that time, there was also Goitz who was in the New York scene. And he basically told Goitz to go talk to BMW or vice versa because he put those two together. And when I when I put when I read it in the archives or things like that, you can even see that Max Hoffman put these two people together. Put these two together. But he also made sure he kept, his, he kept just a little bit of distance on He He made the introduction. He said, oh, this is a really great designer. You should really talk to him. But, you know, I don't have anything to do with it. Why, why don't you just talk to him yourself? He was being influential while trying to keep his distance. And sure enough, BMW says, oh, no, make a car for Hoffman. They hire on Goitzen. He's a great designer. Builds a, build a beautiful 507 for him um, as far as for design. But it took a while to build because every time somebody thought they had something right, still went back to Hoffman he may have been unofficial but everybody got Hoffman's blessing for this car
0: he could sell cars
1: oh yeah he was their link to the usa and the thing about that was going on though is bmw bmw knew they were building a sports car they weren't saying hey we should show Hoffman a sports car see if we should build it they just saw Hoffman as a link in the chain of them building the sports car and so as they start gearing up for the car, they, they, as they're doing more work on it, they even strike up a um, a contract with Hoffman. As far as well, he was going to order. The number was about twenty five hundred cars for I think twenty five hundred dollars, and that was what Hoffman wanted. He said, "You can give it to me for twenty five hundred dollars. I can turn it around to sell it for just under five thousand, and in that time, it was going to slot." under the 300 Mercedes 300 SL, but above the 190 SL. And all this is in his, these are all cars that he has. So it fits really well in this lineup and he knows what he wants. He knows how to have it. So BMW says, great. They keep developing the car. And as they're developing the car, they go back to Hoffman and say, great, okay, so you asked us for this. Um, we're going to have you sign a contract. Um, we're going to give you a million dollars worth of revolving credit from our bank, and you're going to put a deposit of $500,000 on these cars on day one so that um, we can take these cars and really mass produce them. Right now, we're making prototypes out of aluminum, but we need, we need to make these out of steel to get you the price you want. And Max goes, hmm, okay, maybe, and just sort of delays them. And <laughs> this, is, this, this, this is the weird kind of story about Max Hoffman, because Max Hoffman loved taking his credit out for test drives. He'd go well past his credit limit. He loves his credit. But what we were talking about before, about how he kind of wanted, he lost fortunes in fleeting, you know, fleeing countries a couple of times, he really was also kind of financially conservative with his own money in the sense of... He would be very happy to do a revolving line of credit outdo his credit if he was buying a car that was then just on a ship on its way to his showroom. He wanted to physically have a car in his hand, usually. And he showed, he had a history of that, but BMW didn't know that. They just kept saying, okay, well, Max, you signed the contract. And they kept developing the 507. Um, And Max just sort of pushed them off to the side a little bit, said, oh, yeah, sure, whatever, whatever. He was never going to do something like that because it just wasn't in his nature to be on the hook for that much for that much money for that length of time but bmw just saw them as a link and they kept developing the car and so there was a fatal flaw in what everybody was doing and or more appropriate than what bmw is doing but they didn't know it they built the car and they built them out of aluminum but they actually built them they actually called them the series one cars and then they built the series two which would be better for the usa and the reason why all this matters is they were actually building cars they gave it to them because they wanted to send hoffman a few cars that he could sell, cars that he could, as far as for sell to his dealers, not necessarily cars that were going to be his, his, for his mass market. He wanted to get his, they wanted to get his dealers excited. So he'd make the deposit and they could make steel cars. What ended up really happening is they sent him three cars that he could actually sell. they were aluminum body cars. They had to sell to them for their cost, which was $5,000. And so Max though had three cars he could actually sell and put on the street, and he had to sell them for 10000 which meant that he was selling these BMW 507s for about the same price as a Mercedes 300 SL. The reason why that was fatal for BMW is so BMW comes back and says, okay, great. You got a car. Now give us give us some more money to do it. Well, Max Hoffman said, no, I've been trying to sell these cars. I can't sell them. They're dogs. You want me to put more money to get more cars I can't sell? Yeah. And right. BMW said, well, if you do that, we can bring it down. But it was just that neither side was going to take that one last half step towards each other. And so, in a lot of ways, BMW people have talked about how Max Hoffman didn't quite... Ma- Max Hoffman didn't live up to his expectations. And they're right about that. But what, what kind of gets muddled in that a little bit, too, is that BMW is so gung-ho about making a new car that they their fatal flaw was that they made a car before it was the one that they were selling to the public, or that they should have been selling to the public. And so... <laughs> The 507 is just this really interesting saga, especially especially in the long form, the ins and outs, and the fact that it was kind of the BMW Thunderbird. But the fact that the Thunderbird came out while that car was being developed meant nobody needed BMW Thunderbird. Right. Just, there, it, 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 it just it just had so many things going wrong for it. But when you talk about challenges and failures, that saga was just was just this really really big one that well, it eventually got Max kicked out of BMW the first time. He'd come back later. But BMW actually kicked him out and, and gave the entire franchise to uh, to the guy who was selling Isetta's.
0: Wow. So kind of a story of digging a hole and not knowing when to stop digging and getting out. Uh, <laughs> everybody was involved in digging that hole. Yeah. Fascinating story.
1: Absolutely. W- when it comes to a business side, I, I guess maybe what I-, what I should probably from the business side, I know I love telling the, the long stories, but so I guess what what to me and a, a, a takeaway is exactly that you got to know when to stop digging the hole and also look at your neighbor's hole, see where they're digging and why they're digging. Right. <laughs> because if you're only if you're only looking at your hole, you don't know how to dig. You don't. You'll never know how to fill yours up. Maybe is a better way of putting it.
0: Yeah. Right? <laughs> interesting. Well, I want to talk a little bit about you and cars. You mentioned to me before we got started an interesting car that you call your Swedish pimp mobile what (laughs) what is this um so uh, i
1: um so the cars that are currently in my garage one of them is a uh is a first year uh volvo uh, 262c that's the uh that's the one the coupes they sent over to bertoni to finish the body um and then so it it, it's it i love the look of these cars because they call it Swedish Pitmobile. It looks, like, it looks like a Lincoln, it looks like a Lincoln Mark 8. There are seven eights and all the ones with the vinyl tops, the most mugs, long doors, except it happens to be a Volvo. Um, and then they also happen to give it their six cylinder engine. They four or six, six was the best that you could get. And so I'm not a hot rod guy, but it, it, that just was never the best. I never thought it was the best. And so right now it's running a Chevy 350. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's, easy, to, that's easy to tune and get plenty out of.
0: Very cool. Well, I guess you'd have to call that your special vehicle story because uh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, those cars were interesting when they came out, especially with that kind of chop top thing. It's like, what are they doing here? Because Volvo, you think about that back in the day, basically, you know, they started producing cars that came to the U.S. as these safe cars, boxy refrigerator cars, I call them. And then they did that. And it's <laughs> like, OK, well, you get Bertoni involved and they got to put their flavor on it you know, uh, lift their leg on that a little bit and change change the, the looks a little bit. I'm going to be your car psychologist here for a moment, Miles, and crawl into your head. If you were reincarnated as a vehicle, what would you be? But more importantly, why? <laughs>
1: uh, I, as much as I love my Bertone, and I didn't call it a Bertone, um I wouldn't be that. I would be, uh, I'd actually be an NSU uh, row 80. A what? That, for sure. Uh, so the NSU, uh, you call it a RO80, and RO80, it is probably one of the, the uh, it's just one of my favorites. It's, um, it, so late 60s into the 70s, NSU, who um, basically were making small cars, good for motorcycles, uh, they also were the ones who had the uh, Felix Winkles pat- a patent. And so they gave it to a whole... Not necessarily gave it to, they sold it to a bunch of different car companies, but they also kept it for themselves. They had the Wankel Roadster and then the Row 80 was, this, it was actually, it was a large sedan. And um, it, it's, it, it still looks beautiful today, but it's relatively conservative compared to, say, a, uh, to, to say the uh, Roadster, things like that. And so it's just, it's different from anything else out there. But it's still useful, and it's not quite so exotic, and so it fits in a little bit. I'll,
0: I'll be know,
1: I, 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 I like the look of the car, and I, I love I love it as a personality.
0: Well, it's certainly unique, and I'll bet there's a lot of people that are right now googling that, going, "What is he talking about?" Because you just don't see those. I don't know that I've ever seen one in person anywhere. Um, but one of the things that I do recall when you look at pictures of it, the back end. Now, this may be a stretch, but reminds me of the BMW CS. Um, because of those, those lights kind of down below that belt line that comes around, kind of has a little of that feeling. I know there's probably rolling some eyeballs going, Mark, you're stretching a little bit. What are you drinking this morning? But um, yeah, it's a very unique car in uh, the way that Actually, uh, that you... last pillar comes down with the chrome strips. And yeah, very different.
1: Well, so you, you hit an interesting point when you talk about the CS. So it was it uh, was it Cloud's loop? No, uh, uh, not good guy. Uh yeah, Name Escapes Me, who is the uh, designer for that, eventually then becomes a, um, uh, eventually works for BMW. And so he's the next generation. He's more into the 3 Series, but he, I I bet you that was part of his influence and part of the reason I I can, I, I don't know his full biography, but I bet you, you've actually seen something you're actually seeing something that's quite true is that there's a lot of that influence going in between them.
0: Was that Hoffmeister? Wilhelm Hoffmeister?
1: No, no. So that, so this is, this is after Hoffmeister. Okay. Because that was who had your CS. And then this is the next generation who sort of came after and, um, and set the tone for the later seventies and into the eighties. And it been, and so the, the car is relatively obscure, but the, the design echoes for a long time. Granted, it's also rotary powered. It's, it's a clutchless shift transmission of vacuum operated clutch. It's just it's it's just all sorts of crazy, and crazy is a whole lot of fun
0: to me. <laughs> there you go. You're the only one of those that's ever been on the show, so that's very, very unique. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, uh, we always talk about books. This book, of course, you've got to get on your library shelf, Max Hoffman, Million Dollar Middleman, uh, by our guest today, Cornblatt. I'll put links to that book. It's published by our friends at Veloce Press. They brought some great books and some great people here to Cars. Yeah, so I love that. I'm going to allow you to go on what I call the ultimate Drive. I'm going to park anything. This should be interesting. I'm going to park anything in your garage. You can take it for a drive, and you can take anybody <laughs> with you, including somebody, if you want to take Max, somebody from the past is no longer with us. So what would the ultimate drive look like for a unique guy like you? Tell you the
1: truth. Uh, I, before I started the book, I would have absolutely taken Max. Now I wouldn't. <laughs> okay, now that you know um, him. <laughs> now now, now, that I, now that I know the man, I absolutely wouldn't take it with him. That, Max, uh, before anything, of the side of his, Max really did – did a lot of things. And he also, Max had a real good eye for style. As he pointed out, it was with, uh, he did a lot of things with uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. He got his uh, Jaguar showroom built and had a home and he, he even some other things he did style-wise. So he would be a nice person to talk to, except for I kind of know Max at this yeah. point. Now I kind of know what know he would yeah. say. sure. Yeah, so, you know, he, he he can come along for the ride, but he doesn't get he doesn't get to drive. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you have to sit in the back seat. Um,
1: you know, let's, I tell you, I'm going to start out. This is a tougher one. So I'll start out at least telling you I know the where and the what. So my garage is now, I guess I keep coming back to Germany. I, it must be the main It keeps coming back German. I swear I'm an American. I, I love my, my heritage, but I'm going back to Germany and I'd be on the Autobahn. Uh, but the 1970s Autobahn, t- today's Autobahn is fine.
0: It's too crowded. You can't drive fast there anymore.
1: <laughs> you can't drive fast. The, the, there's less unlimited sections, and you know there's so much more signage that you don't know when you're outside of an unlimited section. And I guarantee you, I don't want to. I don't want to find myself, speeding uh, through a, a work zone I didn't know existed. My my grandfather would tell me they would put me in the clink for the kind of things yeah, that I do.
0: Probably so. <laughs> yep.
1: But so I am 1970s Autobahn. I am driving an Ro80 that is not me. Um, <laughs> but it is, but I would still drive that because that has room for a little bit of everybody. We can cruise for a little bit. And because I, I love a good conversation I'd have, maybe I'd have Jim Gardner, you know, James Gardner no, I wouldn't have Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen wouldn't let me drive, but James Gardner, he, you know, he, he did as many good car stuff. He had his race team. He had his movies. Um, he'd be a fun story or you, you know what a good guy to take would be John Fitch because John Fitch would be able to tell me Hoffman stories. Okay.
0: That <laughs> makes sense.
1: So, well, John, 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 Fitch, John Fitch, uh, drove some of Hoffman's cars, some of Hoffman's Jaguars up at Bridgehampton, but he also built his own cars. He was an amazing engineer. And well, he, 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 he talked to me about everybody from Cunningham to the Kennedys. And so all of a sudden, you know what? So, okay. So if it's one person, it's John Fitch. If it's two people, it's James Garner and John Fitch.
0: Sure. You can <laughs> take two. There's room in the car. I think that'd be fun. That's why we take the sedan, right? There you go. I love it. Nice story. Well, you've taken us on a fun ride today. I encourage you, Lister, to get your hands on this book. If you love car books, and as I always say, buy a copy for a friend, too. Uh, Books are a great thing to give to friends because once they're done, they can either keep them or hand them off to the next person. Uh, It's a fascinating story about a fascinating man, and I believe you will learn some things as I have that you didn't know about Max Hoffman. Uh, Before I let you go today, though, Miles, would you share maybe some words of inspiration, a success quote? or a a mantra of some kind
1: i mean i I told you i I, I blew up one career just to be in this one so i mean (laughs) i i I guess i should have a mantra it's uh work smart work happy and the money will come
0: there you go and the best way to (laughs) connect with you i know you have an instagram and a linkedin account so i know you're i know you're not a huge big fan of social media but uh those are two ways people can connect with you is that right yeah, wouldn't
1: mind that a bit because, I mean, I'm, I'm not the biggest social media hound, but, you know, if somebody has something to talk about, really don't mind somebody reaching out because that's how we tell great stories.
0: There you go. Absolutely. And, of course, you can find copies of this book either at Veloce Press or, of course, Amazon, which is, if you're on this side of the pond, a good place to buy the book from. I'll put links to that so you can get your hands on the book very easily. And I want to do a shout out. Thank you to my friend at Veloce Press, Kevin Atkins, who put us together today. So, Kevin, thank you very much miles yeah absolutely he's brought some great guests to the show here miles thanks for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and sharing this wonderful books a wonderful book about a fascinating character in the automotive sector uh really responsible for a lot of the classics we have today being over here so we're very grateful until you and i talk again my friend i'll see you down the road oh, thank
1: you mark this was great anytime we can talk about cars a little more whether it be on or off air i'll see you around
0: absolutely we'll have some fun